One, two, three, there we go. So, Ordinary, when are you expecting to start this retreat? Or I guess maybe you're already on it. <laughs> yes, I mean, I kind of started when I got on the plane uh, yesterday from Berlin and then just tried to stick with some sort of mindfulness of breathing the entire time and uh, and then so kind of already started as far as I'm uh, but I guess this will be the first whole day at this place okay uh, <clears throat> well welcome to uh, so what Mok Skype then and um, this will be the orientation session <laughs> for a new retreat you had said earlier that you had been to burma and had done a uh a retreat that you used the word intense on okay let's talk about um the various aspects of the intense mm -hmm. And that when you have one intense thing after another, after another piled on, it seems to be adding to the intensity rather than one thing is so high intense that the others don't even count. That's one way of looking at it. But in, in fact, uh, it seems to be um, piling up. Now, one of the things that I have seen in almost all retreats or let us say all legitimate retreats that, that are retreats in the sense of a meditation retreat. Um, they all have um, one thing in common in the sense of uh, the concept of seclusion. That the Buddha was very big on uh, seclusion, especially for the beginners. And we'll talk about it more. But in a retreat, we can talk about the fact that if you go to a, a retreat, unlike where you are now, but let us say in Burma, that in a way you weren't in seclusion. There were all kinds of people around and that you had to kind of pretend that you were in seclusion. But there were there were some real things that they do work with in the sense of seclusion. And that is no laptops, no cell phones, no uh, books to read, no journals to keep, no writings to do, uh, absolutely nothing like that. And they also tend to make rules about uh, some meditation sessions are more formal than others. And these are the ones that you got to do. You got to do eight in the morning and you got to do it 11 and you got to do it two, and you got to do it eight at night or something like that. OK. And so these are the kinds of things that they have. So they have both a set of rules and an environment. And that basically these rules about the, the stuff is to set that environment to be in absolute seclusion. And the whole point of that for the beginner is uh, that, uh, how to say it? it if, the, if the student starts to practice wrongly, it becomes intense. But it originally was the idea of getting into seclusion so that the student can start off immediately to start practicing correctly. Mm. 
because they've got now no distractions. We're trying to get the students in a situation where there's no distractions. Everything is far away and, and we're secluded so that the only thing that we have to, uh, to work with uh, is our own mind. Unfortunately, not only in a re um, meditation retreat center where the, uh, the seclusion is a bit artificial because of so many people around, but even in the environment of being out actually in the woods, in seclusion, in an empty hut, under a pile of straw or inside of a pile of straw, at the foot of a tree, or the kind of places that the Buddha recommends, even inside of a cave, we're not yet quite secluded. Why? Because we bring the whole world with us in the sense of our idle chatter about the past and the future. Okay, and so when that chatter continues on and the student doesn't take the opportunity in this real seclusion to seclude himself from even that yet, then that chatter is going to make it feel like that everything is intense because you're thinking about all the things that could be done and you can't do anything and all the things that might happen and they're not going to happen. And so the mind is... Um, let us say, literally raining big time. Yeah. And um, uh, that that rain is then uh, winds up being a flood rather than soaking in. And what we want to do is to have that stuff soak in so that we don't have to put up with it. And so this is where we begin to practice correctly. And so the, the correct practice in is really all about getting completely secluded from the world in the sense that not only are we secluded from the outside world being in quarantine the way you are, but you're also going to seclude yourself from the internet if you want, or you, you make your own rules and list about what you're going to uh, have. But the most important thing is, is to allow yourself to be secluded from unwholesome thoughts. That's the place to get started. Uh, that, that in fact, is uh, uh, so important uh, that the Buddha that the makes a, a mention of it in, gosh, so many suttas. It's like... He harps on this one point over and over and over again, and that is the hindrances and to be free from the hindrances. Once we're free from the hindrances, now we can use the mind to stay free from hindrances. We can apply the mind to keep it in, in freedom and to remain there. This is the actual practice that we're, we're looking for is to get the mind into wholesome states. And so this is the way to start practicing then, is to get the mind secluded from all of the unwholesome parts of the world. And also the main job now is to seclude your mind from unwholesome thoughts. Okay. In fact, the Buddha says in uh, Sutta number 117, when he's talking about the Eightfold Noble Path, he makes a big point about one's right effort. And one's right effort is, is to see wrong view as wrong view and to correct it to right view. 
and one's uh, later one's uh, right effort is to see unwholesome wrong thoughts as wrong and to change them into wholesome thoughts right in this very moment to see them and to change them. Um, the immediacy of that is is really important in one of the suttas in number 19 in fact the name of the sutta is two kinds of thoughts in the sense of wholesome and unwholesome uh, so thoughts of goodwill thoughts of renunciation thoughts of harmlessness thoughts of good cheer thoughts of non-critical thinking or nurturing thinking would be the kind of wholesome thoughts that we would have. And unwholesome thoughts would be thoughts of things that have to be done, thoughts of places to go, thoughts of thing, uh, desires or things that we want, doubts about the practice and all kinds of things like that that will prevent us from being in a really nice, cheerful mood. So, um, in this uh, Sutta number 19, the Buddha talks about it in the sense of a cowherd who is taking his cows along a path. And along the path are food stalls and children and all kinds of things. And he has to make sure that his small herd of cows is going to stay on the path, that they're not going to be stealing food off the food stalls and they're not going to be stepping on kids and whatnot. And so the cowherd takes a stick and he guards them and he whacks them. And he keeps whacking them to keep them on the straight and narrow because he knows that it is dangerous if he lets the cow run amok. All right? It's dangerous to let the mind just go wandering all over the thing. In fact, you could say it like this. Things get intense. <laughs> and so if that, if that cow herd is not guarding those cows, things get intense with the villagers. They don't like it that he's not guarding them. But after he gets them through that uh, area, and gets them into the pasture where the rice has been eaten or uh, whacked, and the stubble and the um, uh, the refuge is left there. Now he doesn't have to stand with the cows with his stick. Say, don't eat this, oh, don't eat that. He's not whacking them now. In fact, he can go sit down under a tree, and all he has to do is watch them to make sure. Yes, there they are. Yes, there they are. And in that way, this is how we would work with the mind in the sense of once we get the mind in the wholesome state by whacking it from time to time, keep keeping it out of the un, uh, inappropriate thoughts into the thoughts about the here now, the, the mind actually will pretty quickly fall in line. Sure. This is not much of a struggle. The mind will fall in line. We start uh, intending to have wholesome thoughts and, and continue to have wholesome thoughts. And so now there's not so much work to do and we can relax. So in fact, now we've gone through two levels of relaxation. The first level uh, was very intense. And so we relaxed it into guarding the cows. 
And so now we're relaxed again. Now that we don't have to guard the cows to keep them out of going into the intense, now we can just relax because they're safe. Everything is safe. Everything is secure. Everything is all right. And we can, in fact, relax. What a... And so we can get ourselves into a relaxed, wholesome state. And this is um, got several factors to it. One of the factors is, is that the mind now is free from hindrances. And we can define hindrances then as anything that's going to hinder us from being in this relaxed state. Okay, so... Now that we're secluded from the hindrances, that has the quality of being relieved, that this is relieved and relaxed, the body relaxes, everything relaxes. But because we're continuing to breathe well, the mind is sharp. And so we put our attention on the breathing, but we do it in an easygoing, relaxed way that all we have to do is note that this is an in-breath and note that this is an out-breath. And there's not much else to be done because we're noting the mind already. Everything is okay. Everything is wholesome. With this, um, because we're guarding the mind and keeping the mind in the wholesome, that means that we've already been going through and are now continuing to go through giving ourselves actually good wholesome thoughts to think. And some of the good, wholesome thoughts that we can be thinking, the Buddha would call those kind of thoughts gladdening the mind. Okay, thoughts of goodwill for other people or metta would be thoughts of being kind. But thoughts of competition with other people, that's unwholesome thought. Okay, so wishing other people goodwill, wishing other people in the sense of, boy, I wish they could feel as good as I do right now. Wow, what a nice world this would be if everybody felt this good. And that's a kind of meta because you're really well-wishing in the sense of may all beings be happy because that kind of meta is not coming from a place of meta. It's coming or not coming from a place of wholesome. It's coming from a place of unwholesome, wanting to be wholesome. May all beings be happy. That whole may quality is, is that they're not. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the the metta that we do has to already come from the wholesome place. But the wholesome also would be thoughts of, wow, isn't this nice? Everything's mm-hmm. going to be all right. Everything is fine. No worries, no problems. Got no place to go and nothing to do. I can just sit and relax. And isn't this marvelous? Okay, so this is the talking ourselves into it um, in the fact that we're using wholesome thoughts. And this is a process of gladdening the mind so that we can actually begin to actually feel relaxed, to feel comfortable, to feel at ease, to feel content and secure. And we literally talk ourselves into it with wholesome thoughts. 
We talk ourselves into it with having wholesome thoughts. Wow, isn't this so nice? Wow, no place to go and nothing to do. I've got nothing to do. And then if any restlessness comes, we can feel that restlessness and we can say, hot dog, I see you restlessness. And guess what? I'm not going to go do anything just because you're restless. Because restlessness will come up. That's one of, by the way, one of those intense things that happens in these uh, meditation retreats is restlessness will come up. What is the restlessness for? Well, actually, the restlessness has already been there. That's why we open a book or go to YouTube, take out our cell phone, read an article, whatever we're doing, we get active because we are kind of driven into activity. There's an underlying boredom or restlessness that is there that is actually built into our society, that we get every child up and running, literally, to the point that he continues to run even when he's asleep. There's something in there that's just wound up and clock is ticking, you know. All right. And so we have to get in touch with that rather than feeling intense, like I've got to do something and here I am and I'm on, sleeping on a hard surface, got no place to go with nothing to do and I hate it and I can't do anything. And now on top of that, I've got all this restlessness and you can see how all of that intense starts to mount up. <laughs> and it's very common. Students do that on a regular basis. Be, be alert to that. Be alert to when that restlessness comes to see that that's just an underlying fear of something needs to be done. The reality is, is that if you get up and leave that uh, hotel room, that's dangerous. And you know it. Staying put is not dangerous. Even though something inside, you know, they call it what? Cabin fever, stir crazy. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, uh, words for it. Um, and that's exactly what 10-day meditation retreats are designed to stir up. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so there will be a moment in time or two or three or four or a dozen or every day or every 10 minutes when you'll feel that restlessness. And that's when you really need to practice going back into the wholesome and to say everything's okay, everything is fine. There's no snakes or crocodiles in the room and there's no place to go and nothing to do. And then you can start taking a few deep breaths and figure out how to play with this restlessness. How to get in touch with it. What to, to find out, is it located in a particular part of the body or not? You probably are not fully aware of it now, but you probably recollect when you were in the retreat that, yeah, there was that restlessness that was there in that retreat. And you started to already deal with it. So when it comes back this time, welcome it like a friend. <clears throat> if I may say something to that, uh, yes. I recently, after uh, yeah, give or take a few years, twenty years of um, smoking cigarettes, I quit. Uh, 
eight days ago. Okay. So I've had I've had a good week of getting to know restlessness more <laughs> than I have. Maybe, yeah, in a very long time, if ever. And it is. Um, yeah, <laughs> I've I've gotten to know it to know my restlessness quite a bit, and I'm kind of uh, happy <laughs> that now um, we've become more friendly. I'm sure there's still like miles to go, but there has been some progress on that. Uh huh. Well, you see, there's um, there's an additional kicker to restlessness, and that is is that we want to get rid of it. We do not like it. And that um, because of the fact that we haven't developed fully the skills yet to deal with it, we deal with it the way that we were taught to deal with it our whole lives, which was to go do something. Hmm. Uh, hoping that that gets rid of it, and guess what it generally does? Well, if what it does is it gets our mind off of it. Mm. And then the anxiety and the uh, restlessness will come back. And in fact, it's only really there solidly when we've got nothing to do, because that drive of going and getting something done is so strong. And so now <clears throat> you don't have to deal with it in the sense the way that most people would by not knowing this. You can actually now be on guard for that. Uh -huh. I see you, restlessness. Yes, I do. I can see it. There has also been, seemed to be, especially when sitting in meditation during this process, this uh, thing that happens when the body is very still and thoughts of, say, having a cigarette or getting up or, or just like a general sense of restlessness coming up. But mm -hmm. being able to being able to sit still through it, not and uh, and allowing Actually. that to be, but pass on its own, and it can sometimes create sometimes create very strange uh, letting go feelings in the body. Yes, this is what we're looking for, because in in when you first started to mention this, it sounded like that you were kind of grinding your teeth and, and pressing on it, that it was very, very heavy and strong and big, but you would somehow manage to push it down. No. That's, not that, that's not quite the way that we would want to work with it instead. There's other easier ways that, in fact, when we see that build up, we can see the power and the pressure in it, and we want to relax that, not build up more power and pressure to push it down but to rather to relax it. And so taking long, deep breaths with the idea of every out breath is going to relax this restlessness. Hmm. Yes. Okay, every couple of breaths then we're going to relax it. Whatever chemicals were in the body that cause the restlessness is going to be breathed out. The blood circulates, stuff collects, we're breathing it out and let it go like that. Uh, relief, a sigh that is a <sighs> always consider it in the sense of a job well done. 
What mm. was the job needed to be done is to remove the mind out of the unwholesome into the wholesome. That's the only job that's needed to be done right now. Mm. Which means that when the mind gets completely wholesome and there's no more unwholesome thoughts happening, the next phase is, well, now I don't even have to work at that and I can just let the mind completely relax so that there's gaps between the thoughts. But when the thoughts do come, they come up wholesome. Hmm. I do feel like I have quite a few stretches of of gaps between thoughts. I probably feel when you're talking about it now, like um, there's still work to be done with um, with the thoughts that come up being wholesome. <laughs> mm -hmm. So uh, there there's gaps and sometimes quite long stretches. And uh, but uh, so uh, would you then but... re recommend when a thought comes up? in this space like what i would what i've normally done is to kind of not pay attention to it not not trying to push it away but but no we're not, going to actually analyze yeah grab hold of any thoughts as they come get very good at grasping them mm -hmm. Uh, taking control, just like we're actually taking control of the breath, we're also taking control of the mind. Mm. But the whole point about the practice basically is, is that each individual one of us has been basically out of control. And we keep looking for someone to help us get back into control, where in fact nobody can control their own mind. How can they help me control mine? And so that's why we have so much hypocrisy and rulemaking and all of that in the world. It's because people don't actually learn how to control their mind. Now, Mahasi actually was quite specific on this. Uh, the book that I'm referring to is a book that I saw translated in 1965. So this is really old stuff. And it was translated into English. Uh, but in the point where he's talking about to grasp the object or to, t we in English, uh, Western Buddhism say, take on an object, but a better way of saying it is, is that we jump on an object. Mm. We grasp it. Uh, we confront it, uh, seize it, uh, in, in the English language of this book, they actually use a very interesting phrase to fall upon it. Mm. Hmm. Okay, which would be the same thing, uh, more, uh, that would be very ancient way of saying it, a more modern way of saying it is just jump on it. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa makes clear that that's true also, as well as indications in the suttas. And so you've got all of these old masters agreeing that we actually have to jump on the object. Um, this seems, right. this does seem different from what I was taught in, um, at the Pau Monastery, but, uh, but I don't know if it really is or if it, I'm just where they they taught a very kind of strict on the Panasate only breath until 
very strong samadhi states. Um, basically, that's... Okay. Well, we're not looking for those kind of samadhi states because we're not using the word samadhi like that. We're using the word samadhi in the way that it was used originally in the Pali. And the word samadhi itself means to collect things together. And so when the mind is collected together, when the mind is unified, and we can say, well, the mind is unified in what way? Well, no conflicts of interest. We don't tell lies because a lie would be a division in the mind. We have no doubt because any doubts about is it this or is it that? And now the mind is not unified or collected together. Okay, so this is the mind because if you were thinking about the Eightfold Noble Path is to get somebody into the kind of samadhi mind that many meditators think. That means he can't get up off the floor of the meditation hall. And if he got into that kind of state while he was on the bus, he might wake up in the morgue or in the ICU because nobody knows what to do with him when he's in that kind of samadhi state. We're not looking for that kind of samadhi state. We're looking for unification of mind. And the unification of mind... Uh, Quick one. There is a, a Western American teepee. Uh, Native Americans had uh, temporary housing for the plains called a teepee. You know it? Okay. Yes. Guess what? It's got a samadhi. What is that? That's where all of the ridge poles are collected together and tied. Which right. means that, that they can throw the thing over, collect it at that point, tie it to the back of a horse and drag their teepee. Hmm. They take it anywhere they want to, and then they t uh, un untie it, grab one of the poles, pull it out, pull the others out, and now they can reset up the teepee. They only have to take it down. It's even easier to put up in a tent. <laughs> hmm. Because of these ridge poles that uh, collect together at a point, a samati point. Many Asian buildings are built with a samati point. In fact, in Western buildings, we have the concept of a gable. There's a high point where things lean like that, and they lean on each other. The same thing is an arch, where you have that center arch pin, and now the whole arch is very strong, so you can put huge amounts of weight on it. Hmm. All right? This is what we mean by the uh, samadhi, is when things are collected together in a unity fashion, and so we're actually also practicing samadhi and what we're doing by number one, being free from hindrances, and number two, getting ourselves into a state of satisfaction, and three, of getting the mind applied to being in the wholesome and sustaining it. And voila, guess what? We now have just talked about and gathered together the five factors of the first jhana. Okay, so... And it doesn't have anything to do with concentration or let's talk about it like this. Look at my hand. Imagine that this is whatever we're going to concentrate on, right? And this is the mind, right? The mind. All right. And what we're going to do in our practice is we're going to just keep pointing back to it until pretty soon it gets pretty stable and it can just stabilize and be and pointing at it until it finally relaxes. It relaxes and everything is comfortable. Right? <sighs> now, 
most people think of concentration is, is that, oh, I've got to really keep my eye on that thing and I'm going to push on it and I'm going to shove on it and I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to get a whole bunch of, no, that's the whole wrong way. You're putting way too much effort into it. And not only that, but you never stop the jerking around while all of that pressure is being put onto it. Mm. And so this is a way of not working with concentration as an, as an object, but rather using the objects of Anapanasati. Especially this part of one's right effort of taking uh, unwholesome thoughts out and putting wholesome thoughts in and then being able to apply that and keep it sustained. And when we can get it going and sustaining so that it's one wholesome thought after another after another, that's actually the practice of first jhana. Hmm. Is when that cow herd can now sit down under that tree and just watch his cows. Hmm. So if I understand you correctly, that would be a state where there would still be thoughts, but wholesome thoughts. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Yes, we're uh, in fact, we want to train that way because most students are lusting and, and grasping and clinging after something even better and even better and even better. And what they're doing is whatever state they're in in that grasping and clinging for second jhana they have not really maintained first jhana because first jhana is really all about sukha or satisfaction mm. you have to be able to get into and sustain a set of state of satisfaction and as the satisfaction gets more satisfied and more satisfied and more satisfied then the thoughts will begin to have gaps in them and then we can uh, move into second jhana. And so this is the way that it's done, always from the wholesome. And yet, if you want second jhana, you can't have it. Even thoughts of wanting it is, is unwholesome thoughts. Wanting something you don't have, and now you've lost your sukha. You're going backwards now. Hmm. Okay, uh, so let me ask you... There's often, um, maybe first, how do you define PT in your paradigm of, of this? Well, let me ask you this. What definitions have you heard of it? Because uh, I, I have already just talked about it, but glossed over it and not used the word. So yeah. what, what is your definition of it? Uh, the way I've used it? Myself is to, or, or thought of it as a very physical aspect, like... Uh, you read that right out of the Vasudhi Maga, yeah. Well, I guess for me, it's also more a felt experience than something I've read out of the Vasudhi Maga. I've never read the Vasudhi Maga, but... Um, but like um, a lot of people have. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> a lot of people. Yeah, a lot of people have read it, and a lot of people died. <laughs> well, don't we all? But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But okay, more than just read the book. 
but uh, what I've what I've been referring to when I've said that is that when I uh, when I sit or I, I noticed over time when I started meditating and over time there would be these when once the when it felt like it when it felt like it was going good there would be this um, somatic sensation in the body usually felt in the beginning in the in the upper arm have, okay have let's get away from that for a little while yeah have, have you heard other people's definition of, of pity perhaps in books or in oh books? yes it says i've heard of like the way i think of it is that uh, i know let's not go there again no 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 no, no. yes yeah but uh but um I wasn't going there. <laughs> I was, was going to say that um, I know that there are many different uh, maybe criteria isn't the right word, but uh, definitions was the word you used for it. So, and I've read it in in different books, mentioned in different books, and noticed that the definitions are different. So. Are they? Are they really different? Are all the each individual teacher kind of pointing at something from different directions and using different language for it? Okay. Have you ever you have you ever heard of anyone or seen anyone use the word joy? Yes. Yes. Okay. I guess. Um, Pity fits very, very neatly in, into the uh, practice of Anapanasati and the way that the Buddha frames it to fit in with uh, one's right thought or one's right, actually the way that I translate it often is the uh, underlying position of all of our thoughts has to do with our attitude and that samasankapa uh, can very easily be seen as one's right attitude, that we develop the right attitude. If it were thought, then we would do it immediately. But in fact, one's right thought leads to one's right attitude. Because we have, in, in English, we have the concept of a victim and winner, or top dog, underdog, uh, uh, that goes all over the place, including politician and voter, rich man, poor man, uh, cop and person stopped on the street and teacher and student and uh, professor and student and uh, psychologist and client, all of these one up, one down relationships. And so uh, bringing things back to an even keel requires then for us to be able to go from being the bottom onto being on top. All right, so pity actually has the quality of um, success that I would add to that group of words, secure, safety, contentment, and satisfaction to add another ingredient in there, and that is success. 
that the Buddha expects that. In fact, uh, in Sutta number 48, there is a statement after he goes a long way to define uh, the word uh, that Bhikkhu Bodhi translates is the word obstruction. But basically, that whole paragraph is talking about the hindrances. And then the statement says is that uh, the student knows that no matter how obstructed the mind becomes, that that the student can clean the mind out come back to this present moment and see how things really are. Then it says, this is the first knowledge that is noble, super mundane, a factor of the path, and not held by ordinary people. Now, this is actually right here in the sutta. I've more or less translated it right out of the Pali, though my translation is probably a little warped compared to the other translators, but that's right out of the folly. No matter how obstructed or how often or in what sequence of events that the mind gets into unwholesome thoughts, we can pull it back out of those unwholesome thoughts into wholesome thoughts, come back to this present moment and see the things the way really are. And this is the first step of the noble path. This is the very first step of Sotapan. If you've heard that word before, the noble path starts with when the student has that confidence, that shraddha or shraddha. Okay, this is the pity. The pity then is that confidence. That pity is, in fact, that uh, uh, thought that has a feeling underlying it. And the feeling underlying it is pity. But the thought is can do. I can do this. I can throw my mind back into the wholesome. I know that I can do this. That's why the cowherd in that uh, story could sit down under the uh, the tree and relax is because he knows he's got the cows. He's completely satisfied and content and um, feeling successful that he got the cows out there where they could feed without causing any damage and getting them there. Hmm. Okay, so Pitti Sukha are often used in the Pali together. I've noticed, yes. Uh, So that we begin to put together then that quality of success is where that word joy comes from, the joy of success, the joy of can do and the attitude of can do. And this is, in fact, the fourth item on the Eightfold Noble Path. And that's why the Buddha adds it number four, because number one is right view. Number two is right sati to wake up and to look. Number three is to take the right effort to take the thoughts from unwholesome thoughts into wholesome thoughts. And then number four is to relish in the fact that I've done it. I can, in fact, put the mind in wholesome states and keep it there. And when the thoughts of hindrances come back, I can catch them and pull the mind back into a state of satisfaction. So this is how we use the word pity 
is, is that pity is actually the feeling of success, which is the sapa sama sankapa, the feeling of success gives rise then. And you can see that, in fact, yeah, there's bodily sensations all over the place with this. Let me give you some examples out of real life. One would be the football match. And the guy makes a touchdown or scores a point. In, in American football, what does he do? He will spike the ball. He'll throw it on the ground. He'll dance around with his arms in the air doing a, what, victory dance? Yeah, that's pity. Hmm. Well, this brings up uh, many questions for me. It's... Um quite interesting to hear you use that definition of it and uh, well I've got poly references <laughs> and yes. as well as I've got some backup teachers <laughs> uh, I then have I guess uh, a related but maybe but maybe not in a way question this uh, because the way uh, I had used it, at least in the past, the word, it was, I, w I wonder what you make of this feeling then, because to me, from my felt experience, feels a little different. And is it then a different thing? Is it, like you said, just a different, um, is it pointing to the same thing or... I'm trying to uh, to clarify the feeling, the somatic feeling. Let me ask you this: Did you like it? Oh, 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 yes. I rest my case. We don't have to go any further than that. Okay. We don't have to analyze. Fair enough. Too much. Good feeling is good. That's it. Yeah, that's the whole point is to feel good and comfortable and relaxed and enjoying the moment. Unburdened, unbound with nothing to do and no place to go and just keeping track of what's going on. Yeah, it is that. Yes. And it becomes very easy, and life is easy. And then sometimes insights will come, oh, hot dang, this really does work. This really is that good. <laughs> so, if we put away PT, and you say that PT Sukha is often... Uh, it is a skill to be developed. At this point in time, it will remain a skill to be developed. Do not think about trying to move beyond it. Rather, your job right now is to develop it. The PT words, how good can you? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> they're, they're both factors of the first jhana. They are both factors of anapanasati in the sutta. It's step number five and six. 
Relaxation of the body is step four. Step five is pity and sukha. Gladdening the mind, step 10. They're all there in sequence. They're in, in a sequence of... Um, uh, <laughs> they're not in chronological sequence. They're in, in uh, a, a, a format, a formal sequence that I think was defined before the Buddha. And so he just used the sequence that was already there. Because everybody already knew it. Nowadays in modern Western Buddhism, we don't have a clue about what people thought about it back then. And so we are confused as to why it's taught in the order that it's taught here. Hmm. But when you understand uh, the Eightfold Noble Path and that Anapanasati is nothing but the application of the Eightfold Noble Path. In fact, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa said that Buddha actually only taught one meditation. That was only one. There's been recent scholars and, um, and whatnot that have tried to come up with 40 of them, but basically the only one that the Buddha taught was Anapanasati. All the others were preconditioned or pre-existing. So or, are actually part of Anapanasati. Many of them were actually part of Anapanasati. Hmm. And so, yes, pity and sukha are factors, and they're say, as said like this. Mindfully he breathes in while developing the skill of sukha. Mindfully he breathes out while developing the skill of sukha. Mindfully he breathes in developing the skill of pity. Mindful he breathes out, developing the skill of pity. This is how the sutta actually is right. I got them backwards, but I did that on purpose. <laughs> but it said exactly like that. And so that's why that mindfulness of the breathing in long and mindfulness of breathing out long actually helps to the, um, the generation and the building up of these good, wholesome thoughts that lead us into the state of pity and sukha. To where if you leave unwholesome thoughts mixed in, then your pity and sukha are going to be spotty at best. This is the teaching of the Buddha, and it's all over the place. I can name you dozens of suttas where he's talking about this, that you have to have the wholesome thoughts and get out of the unwholesome. And I would go so far then as to say that one of the ways that we can think of unwholesome thoughts are thinking of them in the sense of critical thoughts, judgmental thoughts, Thoughts of this is good and this is bad. Thoughts of I want this or this would be great and all of that kind of stuff. And put all of those kind of yes, no kinds of thoughts aside. And, and focus on thoughts that are nurturing. Wow, this is nice. Everything is okay. Not a problem in sight. Everything is all right. These are the kind of thoughts. Nurturing even to the point of being gushy or even gucci gucci goo or you can sing little songs 
anything like that that takes us back to early childhood when everything was okay long before we got into the uh, into the critical mind of do this and do that these are wholesome things nurturing thoughts non-critical And it's step 10 of Anapanasati, gladdening the mind. And by the way, in one of the books on Anapanasati that I have of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, one that was done many years ago, but not the oldest, it's around page 200 in the book is where he gets to talking about gladdening the mind. And one of the things he says right then and there is, this is the first thing that you should be doing. <laughs> <laughs> And here he's 200 pages into the book. This is the first thing to be doing is gladden the mind, getting it back into the wholesome states, getting it out of uh, unwholesome, out of um, uh, comparisons, out of past, out of future, and just be in this present moment. Wow, this is so nice. So this is the way to practice. You said you had a lot of questions. <laughs> Did I answer them all with it before you ask? <laughs> well, some, not all. I don't know how much time you have, but um, uh, oh, I also got to do, do another five minutes or so. No problem. Yeah. Um, Most of them are maybe really bigger than the the five minutes. I think I think actually I should leave the questions for for another time and then just think of what you told me already. All right, good. Well, go practice. Enjoy your retreat. I will enjoy, and I'm I mean that. Lots of pity, lots of sukha, lots of hopping and dancing around saying, wow, isn't today such a great, yay! (laughs) Perfect. Excellent. All right. Well, call me in a couple of three days then. I will. Let me know how it's going. Thank you very much. Rodney, we'll see you later. See you. Goodbye.